Well, there's, there's a couple of major themes that we've emphasized in Philippians. I hope you remember what they are. Uh, here's, here's one that, again, I hope this rings a bell. We, we've talked a lot about joy. We've talked about a definition for joy, right? It's this settled and unwavering belief or this conviction that a very good God is always in control, right? That's, that's, a, that's how joy works itself out. It's this unshakable confidence that God's good and God's in control. And the second theme that we've talked about a lot, or a second theme that we've talked about a lot, is the, in, in chapter 1, verse 27, where, where Paul is imploring the body to live their lives in such a way that their lives are lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. And this, this living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel has been surrounded by all of these all of these commands and exhortations about how we treat one another, right? How we love one another, how we, we empty ourselves for the benefit of others, reflecting the love of Jesus Christ. So this living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel is reflective of the unifying power of God in Jesus Christ. Unity has been a big theme, right? So joy and Unity, which is again why we put that on a banner over here, just to keep it in front of our, our, our minds as we've been going through this series. Now here's the thing. Today there's a, there's a, there's a real kind of rubber meet the road moment in the letter to uh, the Philippian church. Our topic today puts those two themes to the test. Because it's one thing to talk about unity in the church when you're being sort of general in your application, right? I, I mean, I can get up here regularly and we say, hey, we, we need to be unified. And we would all go, yes, amen, Brother Bill, right? That sounds so spiritual to say something like that. But it's quite another thing when you actually address a real issue. Like, like, hey, we need to be unified. And by the way, you and you particularly. That would be a little awkward, right? But that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's, he's actually coming up with a specific situation in the church. He's naming names. So here we see sort of this theological rubber meeting the road. We're talking about relational conflict between Christians that divides churches. Now it's not an accident that this pops up here at the end of the letter. What we're about to read isn't a tag-on it's not sort of an afterthought. Oh, by the way, I just re- reminded about Euodia and Syntyche that we should do something about that. It's not, it's not like that. It's an issue that I think Paul has had in mind all the way through. So as he's been writing this letter, he's, he's sort of been, been laying this foundation, gearing up for this thing that he knows that he's going to have to address in the church as he gets to the end of the letter. All of the talk that he's been giving to us and them about unity in the Gospel, about self-denial, about Christ-like humility, about considering others more important than yourself, all of that has sort of been pointing in this direction and leading to this moment because there was conflict in the church. There were factions, perhaps, beginning to develop in the church. And so Paul's now ready to deal with it. So look back at the text, if you will. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women 
who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. How do we deal with conflict between Christians and conflict in the church? The first thing that Paul does here is he, he entreats all of them, really, to seek after gospel unity when conflict arises. That's the first point. Seek after gospel unity when conflict arises. So we've heard about this issue with Euodia and Syntyche. What kind of conflict are we talking about? Well, we're not told. Okay? So, how do we get a handle on what it might be? Well, there's some things that we can deduce here. Here's one of them. The fact that Paul names these, these two women tells us that certainly they were known by everybody. I mean, it's probably not a very big church, right? But they're clearly known by everybody. This conflict is clearly known by everybody in the church as he's addressing it in a letter addressed to all of them. It's possible that these were they're even potentially leaders in the church, these two women. This also uh, uh, tells us that the conflict was serious enough to warrant being called out publicly. But, it's not serious enough for him to address it by name. He doesn't tell us what it is. So that tells me that whatever it was, it seems to have affected the whole church. Again, why else make an issue of it? And take this with Paul's earlier pleas for unity and humility, etc. And you get the, the sense that, that this effect of the whole church was probably producing some kind of factions. In other words, people were taking sides, perhaps. And you probably have an issue that was somewhat silly at the beginning. That blossomed into a full-blown disagreement which caused people to take one side or the other until you have this rift. Now, what you say, why would you say it was silly in the beginning? Well, because that's usually the way these things happen in otherwise healthy churches. And Philippi was a healthy church. It's, it's usually something on the more trivial side. It's rarely big doctrinal issues that divide healthy churches. It's the trivial stuff that blows up. Think about it. If I came here this morning and suddenly announced to all of you that I've decided to take another wife. And the reason I've decided to do that is because I've come to this conclusion that God, at least, at least in my case, had condoned it. Now you all, I hope, would unanimously say, Bill, you are a fool. Bill, you are wrong about that, and you would deal with my sinful error, right? That would be a, a major thing. That would be a doctrinal problem, right, that I brought up here. I don't think any of you would take my side. By the way, if that ever happens, don't take my side, <laughs> right? Um, why? Because you're, you're a doctrinally healthy church. You know better than that. You would see the error in that kind of thinking immediately, so in the same way, this issue between Euodia and Syntyche, if it had been doctrinal, if one of them was in serious error, you know Paul would have taken sides. Paul would have said, you're wrong. Yeah, this person's right. Listen to them, right? He, he doesn't do that. 
We know that he would do that, though, because he's done it before. In the previous chapter, he sided against the Judaizers. Remember, he said, look out for the dogs who are trying to tell you to, to, that it's all about circumcision, that it's all about taking on these, these, these Jewish laws. Right? He takes sides when there's serious doctrinal problems. He also did it in Galatia. He did it in Corinth when doctrine threatened those churches. And by the way, those churches were less healthy. And most likely the church in Philippi would have overwhelmingly sided with, with one person over the other, again, if it was a doctrinal issue. But that's not what's happening because it's usually the less significant stuff that tends to divide healthy churches. Things like preferences, things like traditions, things like favoritisms, things like sort of the he said, she said kinds of arguments, things that cause relational hurts, Right? Careless words spoken, um, failure to, to, to be there in a time of need. These are the kinds of things that Satan loves to use to gain a foothold in otherwise healthy relationships. Ephesians chapter 4 reminds us of this. This is a chapter that speaks about unity in the church. And there Paul says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Like it's, those, it's those little hurts that come along, and if we, if we don't deal with them, and we sort of let them fester, that's what it means by letting the sun go down on them. Right? They, we, we sort of let them carry on and delay day in and day out. That, that's when the devil gets a foothold in the church. And the way that the devil gets a foothold is he takes this trivial issue and because it festers, it sort of grows. It's sort of like, like, like a virus in a Petri dish. It becomes then a main issue. Started as a trivial one, but it can sort of turn into a main one. It's, it's the kind of attention, or the kind of issue I should say where, where Satan wants to direct our attention to it. It's, it's not really worthy of that kind of attention, but he'll direct our attention in that way precisely because it's not a doctrinal issue, at least not at first. And so two otherwise mature believers can analyze an issue and come to two different, yet potentially valid opinions about it. And they end up taking sides. And so some in the church might say, I think Yodia was right when she made that comment. And others might say, yeah, but I see how Syntyche was possibly hurt by that or offended by that, and then that begins to cycle through the whole church, and then the next thing you know, you've got division. And that leads to discussion in the church. And that leads to debate. And that leads to conjecture. And that leads to rumor, and then gossip, and then all of a sudden, kaboom. One commentator put it like this, about this church in Philippi. He says the church became polarized around Euodia and Syntyche who were the focus of disunity. These two women, and as a result many in the church, had moved so far apart that the only way for the church to be unified is for these two women to be of one mind. In other words, this thing that started between two people has now enveloped the whole church and the only way the whole church is going to get healthy again is if these two people can get to one mind. So what was the problem? Or that was the problem, I should say. And, and we see then how Paul 
will address it. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Look at, look at how he, he starts this. You, you would almost expect him to uh, kind of come in right away with a, a little bit of scolding language, right? Yet he says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love... And I long for my, my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved. I entreat these two women to agree in the Lord. He does a masterful job here of handling this situation as a godly leader. And I say it's masterful because it's, it's so Christ-focused. And it's so not the way things like this normally get handled. Again, the way things like this might normally get handled is he just starts to kind of take sides himself, right? But that's not what he does here. And we can learn so much from him here, especially those of us who may be leaders in situations where we're trying to help two believers reconcile. He begins this approach by reminding the church of, first of all, his deep love for them. He piles up these five endearing terms here in the opening sentence of chapter 4 to describe his close relationship with them. Brethren. It's, we see here translated brothers, but it's, it's, it's brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Right? Familial language. Whom I love. And I, and I long for. You're, you're my joy. You're, you're my crown. You're my dear friends. What he's doing here is, is he's passionately loving a divided community. Something that may have, may have been sort of slipping away in that community. Something that maybe have been somewhat absent in that community. He's trying to inject it back in. Love. Love for one another. It's not easy for us to do that, is it? But that's what he does. He says, I love you. I, I, I really love you. And then again, he doesn't take sides. He doesn't start to address the specific sins of each woman. Again, that would be easy to do. That would even seem to be justifiable to do. But he simply gives them two imperatives. Two sort of commands here. The first one is, stand firm. Verse 1. Stand firm. And the second one, verse 4, is rejoice. These are, the again, the main themes of the letter. Stand firm. What, is, what does he mean by that? You say, aren't they already standing firm? Isn't that sort of what polarized people do? I'm, sta oh, I'm standing firm, right? That's not what he means here, right? He's, he's saying, no, stand firm means what I've said to you already in chapter 1, verse 27. Look back at that again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in what? In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So do you see what he's doing here? He's directing their attention off of the trivial things. And he's saying, I want you to get your focus back on the main thing. You're standing firm on these trivial things. Stand firm in this side-by-side -side unity Focused on what you're called to be. The body of Christ. The, the, those who would proclaim the Gospel together. Get back on to the main thing. That's masterful. You've been united as one. When, when you're dealing with conflict with another believer, that ought to be one of the first things that, that pops into your mind. 
wait a minute, wait a minute. We've been united together as one. We've been adopted together as children of God. That was accomplished through the Gospel. That's, that was accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection. This is a, a bond that goes deeper than sibling. This is a bond that's been coagulated by the blood of Jesus. So whatever your conflict is, don't dwell on it. Dwell on who you are in Christ. Which is why I think Paul would say, I'm not going to address it by name. I'm not going to take sides. I'm not going to sort of perpetuate this thing. I'm just here to urge you, live in harmony in the Lord. Don't you know who you are? Remember the main thing. Stand firm as one in Jesus Christ and partner again together in the Gospel. So he brings them back to the center. By the way, that, that's, that's one of the reasons why we sang that song. Oh Christ, be the center of our lives. Be the place we fix our eyes, right? That's what he's trying to do here for them. Bring it back to the center. The second thing is he recognizes this situation needs to be shepherded. It needs to be pastorally shepherded. And so he says here in verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the Gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Paul appeals here to this person that he calls his true companion. And he says, I want you to step in and shepherd the reconciliation here of these two sisters. Now what's interesting about this, this, uh, this person, this true companion, is that some speculate maybe it was Timothy. Some say it might have been Epaphroditus. Some commentators say it could be Barnabas or Luke, but, but there's another interesting way we could look at this. In Greek, true companion is one word. It's suzygos, which although translated here as a noun, could sometimes be actually an, a proper noun. It might very well be that there was a person in the church whose actual name was suzygos, whose actual name was true companion, and so maybe this person was an elder, or maybe they were an overseer in the church. Either way, it doesn't matter who it was, Paul's recognizing that this is a person who can have a responsibility to step in and address the situation. Which is a good reminder for us as to why we have elders and pastors in the church. Why do we have deacons? Why do we have small group leaders or youth ministry staff or you know, people like Victoria who are, who are, are, are sort of charged with shepherding roles in the church? There's a reason for that. It's because leadership is here to help shepherd people and lead people towards godliness in their conduct and love for one another. So that's an important role in the church. And it's a good reminder for all of us that we need to go to our leadership in times of conflict. Trust them. Confess to them what's going on and, and say, help. Help. It reminds leaders that we need to be good stewards of that responsibility. If, if you're given a position of leadership in the church and you have a conflict situation, your first reaction is, well, I don't want to deal with that you're not being a good steward of the responsibilities you've been given. It's an important role. We need to do that in a Christ-like way. In other words, we need to do that by not ignoring them and also not participating in 
the argument. And Paul gives this leader here a great motivation and focus for this shepherding effort. He says, these, these women, they've labored side by side with me in the Gospel. These are people, along with others, whose, whose names are, are in the book of life. Bottom line, at one time when the focus was, was where it should be, when the focus was on partnering in the work of the Gospel, there was unity. There was unity. These women were at peace. It's just now that that shift has focused, that focus, excuse me, has shifted away from the gospel partnership into something probably trivial. There's now disunity and there's conflict. So the goal, again, is to get back to a place of unity. In other words, get back to a place of gospel prominence in your lives. Get back to a place of gospel prominence in your church ministry. I want to stop here and just sort of take time to apply this to ourselves. Think about it. You probably don't have to think too hard about it. Are you aware of relational conflict in the church? Are you aware of, a, of, a, of a, an issue that has potential to divide us? When you think about it, did it start as a trivial thing? If so, if the circumstances around this conflict tend to fit the description that I just gave, in other words, if you sort out the, the sort of the root cause of the conflict, it would not center on something that was essentially doctrinal. It's more likely just to be some kind of trivial thing that just went viral. Which isn't to say, by the way, that it's not a significant thing. Don't mishear that. Doesn't mean that it's not a valid concern. It certainly doesn't mean that it's not able to cause relational hurt. Okay? So when I say trivial, don't trivialize it so much that, that, it, that it sort of invalidate that it's a thing. It's a thing. All right? But the question is, at the end of the day, is that thing worthy of ripping apart the body of Christ? Has your gospel partnership been derailed by it? Something that, when you really evaluate it, started off as a minor issue. Do you see factions maybe beginning to develop? Do you see sides being taken here? Whenever relational conflicts arise in the church, we need to get our eyes quickly back on the main thing. Back on the main thing. We need to get our eyes with the help of maybe spiritual shepherds, the help of others in the church, back on Christ and the unity that we have in Him. So Paul here says in verse 4, Rejoice! Rejoice. Get back to that settled and unwavering conviction that God's good, that, that, that God's in control, that the, the power of the Gospel is, is it's at work and it's sufficient. That Jesus' death accomplished something. It accomplished everything. Our sin has been dealt with. 
reconciliation has been brought about. You've been reconciled to God so that you can be reconciled to one another. And that has happened. Get your eyes back on the main thing. Be reminded of these things. Repent. You can't overlook that step. You can't say, yeah, I agree that, that, that this, this is trivial, that, that Jesus died for this, that we're supposed to be unified and just sort of move forward without first stopping and repenting and saying, I was wrong. You confess that and you apply the truths of that Gospel to cover your sin, but don't skip the repentance. Humble yourself. Consider others more important than yourselves. Don't focus on your circumstances. Give of yourself as Christ has given to you. Be wary of religion. Be wary of law. Focus on Christ. Aren't all these the things that he's been talking about all the way through Philippians so far? And that's the setup for addressing conflict. Come back to a Christ-centered, gospel focus and be reconciled to one another as you've been reconciled to God. Be about the work of gospel reconciliation. So there's this protocol that, that, that Paul gives here for dealing with conflict in the church. Now the question is, can we... A, avoid conflict in the first place? And B, how do we then preserve that unity? And so Paul wants to address that here as well in these very familiar verses that we looked at already this morning. Preserving unity is the second point here, and it's a battle for your heart. Look again at, at, at verse 4. Remember, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, now you get a sense of what the anxiety might have been about. He's not just talking about any general anxiety here. He's talking about a conflict situation. When you have that kind of anxiety, what do you do about it? Well, you rejoice. You rejoice. You remember what this letter is all about. Joy, no matter the circumstances. God's in control. God is good. Then you let your reasonableness be known. Verse 5. This reasonableness could also be translated as, as this gentleness. This gentle spirit. It suggests here this forbearing, non-retaliatory spirit. Don't be retaliatory. Be gentle. And let that be known to all men. This joy, this inner quality in relation to circumstances, it, it may not always be seen, but the way one reacts to others, whether in gentleness or harshness, will be seen. Why be gentle? Because he says, the Lord is near. That's why you can be gentle. You recognize God's presence and that changes the way we act towards one another. Verse 6, here it is. This practical way to avoid conflict when you think you have every human reason to be ticked off 
at someone, he says, pray about it. Why? What happens when we pray about things? How does it affect your attitude about a situation when you pray about something? Here's the answer. When you pray, God changes your heart. He changes your heart. You, you depend on Him in prayer. right? You humble yourself to Him in prayer. And in that process, your heart gets aligned with His. Your heart gets aligned. Your, 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 your will gets aligned and when that happens, your feelings of anger tend to dissipate. And he says in verse 7 that, that, that when this happens, there's this peace of God that transcends all comprehension. All understanding. It's beyond your ability to even understand what's happening. This peace that can come upon you. It's supernatural. But that's where it comes from. And this peace will guard believers' hearts. What an important thing in the midst of conflict, right? Why does conflict so often blow up and become something far bigger than where it started? Because our hearts are unguarded. And when our hearts are unguarded, what our hearts are capable of, which is a tremendous amount of evil, can just leak out. But this peace guards our hearts. This is a, this is a word that's, that's a military term that means to protect or garrison by guarding. Sort of like, like soldiers watching over a certain area. God's peace is like little soldiers that, that sort of stand guard around your heart and say, nothing's getting out. Nothing bad. The battle between conflict and unity is a battle of the heart. It's a battle for your hearts. And it's won through prayer. And it's won through this peace that's produced when that prayer directs us back to the main thing. That's how we preserve unity in one way, this battle for the heart. The second way is through the battle for your mind. Verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Peace involves the heart and the mind. Isaiah 26.3 says, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace, God, because He trusts in you. The steadfast in mind will be kept in perfect thing, in peace. Wrong thinking produces wrong feeling. And before long, the heart and the mind are sort of pulled apart and they're strangled by worry. They're strangled by anxiety. And we've got to realize here that, 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 that thoughts are real and powerful, aren't they? How, how much conflict in your life gets way worse in the way that you think about that conflict rather than what's actually happening in the conflict. Our thoughts are powerful. Even though they can't be seen, even though they can't be weighed, even though they can't be measured, we've got to bring them into captivity in Christ. Every sin that was ever committed, think about this, began as a thought. Every action that you've ever done that was sinful started as a thought. 
Therefore, whoever controls the mind controls the person. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. Life's battles are won or lost in the mind and in the heart. And that's why Satan concentrates his attacks on our minds. Brothers, whatever's true and noble, right? think on these things. Don't let the devil get a foothold by making you think the opposite of these things. True things are things that, of course, are the opposite of dishonest and unreliable things. You ever played out a conversation with somebody in your mind that you're having conflict with and you cause them to say things to you that they, they, they never said and probably never would say? And then you just get angry. I'm actually, I hate to admit this, but I'm good at that. And I know I'm good at it because there's times when, when I'll, be, I'll be just sitting in a chair, kind of minding my own business, lost in my own thoughts, and my wife will come in my room and she'll be like, what's wrong? And I'll be like, what are you talking about? She's like, your face right now is so angry. (laughs) And I'll think, oh, oops, you saw that? (laughs) Because I know I was thinking about it. I was playing a conversation out of my mind, right? I only admit that because I know I'm not the only one. I know I'm not the only one, right? So think on the things that are true. Deal in reality. Not thinking or speaking falsely. That means no room for gossip. That means no room for slander. That means no room for lies. What do we know to always be true? Think on that. Here's what you know to be true. Whoever it is that you're fighting with, if if they're in the church, A, you're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's true. B, God is in control. That's true. C, Love. Always. That's true. That's what we're called to. Right? Think on the things that are true. Think on things that are noble, he says. That refers to what's dignified and worthy of respect. In other words, think the best of one another. Don't just think about things that are noble for you. Think nobly about them. Right? Not trudging each other through filth. Think about things that are right. Think about things that conform to God's standards. Have a worldview that conforms to God's standards so that you're not imposing a false worldview on other people and causing conflict. Being unified in the ways of God. Right thinking. Not divided by the ways of the world. Think of the things that are pure, he says. That refers to what is wholesome. Not mixed with moral impurity. Things that are, that are chaste. In other words, don't sin with your impure thoughts. Think of things that are lovely. Things that promote peace rather than conflict. There's, a, there's one commentator that put it this way. Think sort of higher culture. <laughs> right? Take the high road. Things that are admirable relates to what's positive and constructive rather than negative and destructive negativity spreads right negativity breeds discontent so paul says look look take these six these six objects of thought think this way and when you do he describes them as excellent and praiseworthy 
Excellent and praiseworthy. These are the things we're to think about. So what we have here is a call for us to fix our mind on the things of God. And you do that by anchoring your mind in the source for finding about those things, the Word of God. Let your thoughts be directed by God's Word. And if you need help in conflict, you don't have to go very far. Just go back, read the first three chapters of Philippians again. What's he saying? He's pointing us to Jesus and the example of Jesus and saying, live in a manner worthy of this because you've been brought into it by the Gospel. Think this way. And if you fill your minds with the words of God and you live in a manner worthy of that, there's no room for evil. There's no room for worry. There's no room for fear. There's certainly no room for vengeance. There's no room for confusion or trouble. A mind filled with and led by the Word of God is a stable mind. Now, I know you're going to fail at that. So am I, right? But, but we've got to be quick to get our eyes back to the main thing. Anchored back in the truth. Living lives worthy of the Gospel. Which is what he says here to end here. This, this little bit of application he gives in verse 9, he says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. In other words, go back and read the first three chapters. What you've learned, what you've heard, look at, look at my life like I, I've set myself up as an example for you to follow. Follow me as I follow Christ. Go back and, and review all that stuff and then practice these things. Step into it. Again, grace-driven effort. Live this way. Be obedient to these things. When you step out of that, repent, step back into it. Because you're guarded in Christ. You can't step out of Christ. you got to be reminded of who you are in Christ and practice these things. Repent, confess, forgive, reconcile. Nail your conflict to the cross and depend on Him to do away with it. And then love one another as Christ has loved you. That's what it means to practice these things. I could stand up here and probably for the rest of the afternoon give very specific examples of ways that we can practice this. And I'm not going to do that because I, I trust the Holy Spirit is probably working in all of you if you know of specific conflict in your life or the lives of others. I am going to point you though uh, just to one thing as I close and that's the next Sunday sermon. Because I think about, as I think about conflict, and as I'm thinking about one of the ways in which conflict so easily manifests itself in the church, and I'm thinking very contextually about the church now, specifically in America, and, and it's, uh, it's political things. And as we go into Advent, we're going to be going back over the last couple verses of chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And we're going to be focusing on these little phrases one each week over the four weeks of Advent. Verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. So because Jesus came and is coming again, our citizenship is in heaven. We're going to talk about that next week. 
And I think that the timing of talking about what it means to be citizens of heaven is going to be really appropriate, especially, and I'm saying this just kind of sort of set a table for us over the next year, because I know 2020 is going to be an election year. And I remember 2016. And 2016, I can honestly say this, stands out in my mind as the, as the, the year of the most conflict in our church. So what does it mean to be citizens of heaven together? That's next Sunday. So I hope you'll come back and listen to that. That'll, that'll help us apply this passage too. right? And if you can't be here next Sunday, it'll be online. I think you should listen because we're going to need it. <laughs> we're going to need it. But the key here is this. Who are we in Christ? Your brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters. Conflict, will it happen? Yeah. Will it be trivial? 99.9% of the time. You can deal with it. Just get your eyes back on the main thing. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for the grace that You give to us in the midst of relationship conflicts. We thank You that that the church started with this big obstacle in front of it. This this fact that you've got Gentiles and Jews coming together in Jesus and, and they had hated each other. There was so much potential for conflict. Even within their own people groups, there was factions and divisions. And yet, this is what the Gospel did. This is what, what unity in Christ brought about. It, it stripped us of, of, of all these things. And I say us, think, just sort of identifying with our, our forefathers and foremothers in Christ. It stripped them, this first church, of, of, of these unhealthy affiliations and united them in, into a new humanity in Jesus. So if you started the church in that way, Lord, it's reasonable for us to think that that's a continual issue that you'll, you'll always be working on in your church because you want us to be one. So I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. If there's conflict, I pray that they would deal with it today in repentance, humility, and reconciliation for forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that You'd protect us from conflict going forward. But even if it arises, bring to mind these truths and help us to live in a manner that's worthy of the Gospel. Help us to be a community in the midst of a world full of conflict that shows that there's a better way. The way of Jesus. The way of peace, love, unity, and brotherhood. Lord, we we long for that. We long to experience that in our own lives and we long for our world to see it somewhere. We know You've said they need to see it in us. They'll know You're Christians by Your love for one another. So help us, Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.